Welcome to I Play, Therefore I Am. In our conversations with extraordinary games industry professionals, we discover their unique career stories, and we also find out about their personal development and philosophical journeys. This podcast is a co-production of MediaNet, Berlin-Brandenburg, and Now Media, and brought to you fresh from the games capital Berlin, as part of the program MediaNet Games International. I'm Simon. I'm Florian. And we will be your hosts for this program. Gaming meets philosophy. I play, therefore I am. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Play, Therefore I Am. I'm with my co-host Simon. What's up, mister? Yo, yo, yo. Good day, good day. What's up, what's up? <laughs> and our guest today is Patrick P.J. Esteves, a creative director, studio founder, game developer, futurist, musician, and self-described chill dude. PJ <laughs> is at this point a veteran in the games industry with almost two decades experience. His journey brought him to Germany, where he spent seven years in numerous positions at Crytek, among them design director on Rise, Son of Rome. After moving to Berlin back in the big point days, He started his own VR startup called PlaySnack and also worked as a creative director. In 2020, he started another company called Fire and Forge Studios, where they are currently working on their own game, but also as a consultancy for anything from XR to Metaverse. Last but not least, he also works at Icon in Car as senior real-time expert. PJ, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's nice to be out of the uh, Berlin sunshine today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, really had to get to the shade today. Yeah, it was tough. This was sarcasm. It is fall. The weather yes, has yes, been yes. disgusting for days. Uh, yes. Yes. Just, you know, warning, um, warning, sarcasm. For, <laughs> for startups, you are an expert and international in Berlin. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, like where you are from initially and how you came to Germany? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like, uh, this might take up the whole two hours. It's going to be like Homer's uh, Odyssey, you know? Um, <laughs> there was a uh, there was a Cyclops and no. Uh, so <laughs> I actually uh, come from the island of Guam in the Pacific. So a lot further than just the United States where, yeah, I was born there, but I grew up traveling around a lot. So my dad worked for Uh, various jobs for Department of Defense and stuff like that. So kind of a, I guess, grew up a bit of a military brat. So traveling is is normal to me. So I, you know, think uh, as an American, one of the, one of the percentages that have had a passport pretty much my whole life. Um, yeah, I just grew up kind of all over the place, traveling around a lot. Um, and we kind of settled down in the Seattle area. So, um, well, outside of Seattle, like across the Puget Sound and Port Orchard. So you know, um, went to, to high school in Washington state, started college there. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was definitely kind of growing up during the, uh, Seattle grunge, like heyday music was kind of like my first love because, you know, I thought like, okay, chicks like dudes who play guitar. <laughs> like, so <laughs> good, good, good thinking, I think. Yeah. 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 I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it still stands today. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of like funny enough, got into games first just you know 
building Duke Nukem levels. Some of our, my friends and, you know, school um, would do. And yeah, that was kind of like my first intro to like, Oh, this is how you actually make a game. But you know, back to that intro. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're talking about probably 1996 or something like that. Yeah. Right? 97. And, uh, which back Duke then, Nukem was this? The first one, Duke Nukem 3d. Oh, yeah. Sick. Yeah. And it, it was the, cra- it was super crazy, right? Because, like the technology didn't seem to scale up because back then you could have a multiplayer game and if you know, like somebody pulled a switch you could collapse the whole level and you know like do all this crazy stuff like you know over a uh dial up modems so now that we have super fast internet it's kind of weird that we you know like you would think we'd be able to do more with physics and kind of craziness but it's not the case i guess in multiplayer um but yeah, like long story short, moved down with my band actually to San Diego. So the first plan was to be a rock star. Uh, Solid. <laughs> yeah, it was a good. It was a good plan. <laughs> like three steps: one, move to California; two, like uh, find somebody who will sign your band, and then three, become a rock star. But you know, and then question mark, question mark, and then yeah, profit. yeah, profit. Yeah, exactly. So how far along on those on those three steps did you get? And I like, I would say probably like 2.5. So, you know, <laughs> right. like we had a really, uh, we had a pretty famous manager at the time. And, you know, like we were, uh, you know, playing gigs and yeah, we had a decent following. And, uh, and then I think this point came in where they're like, yeah, you know, we think you guys should integrate a rapper into your band. <laughs> like <laughs> Now I'm curious what kind of band it was. So uh, it, it's kind of like, this was the time kind of like like a little bit before incubus and these other mm. kind of like yeah. you know bands like uh uh what is it um you know with fred durst the dude with the red hat limp um, biscuit limp biscuit yeah. park so this yeah. was like maybe like right before that got big so we we're kind of what we would call kind of like what i would call kind of just like california rock a little bit of mm. reggae influence you know in there so um you know obviously no doubt blew up at that time with kind of their ska mm, vibes so kind of so something pretty similar. Um, mm-hmm. Also, Chili Peppers, right, has a similar kind yeah. of new, new rock vibe. Exactly, exactly. And like Weezer was really big at the time, and uh, still yeah. is for me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> right. Like I love their '80s album. A lot of people didn't like it, but I thought it was pretty fun. It was nice. Yeah. So and, yeah, and it was can in we California. Know what, what the band was called? Yeah, the Wide Band. W I D E B A N D. So oh, the Wide Band. Yeah. So f- f- the, just to give you guys a sense of when this was, right? So this was like pre-YouTube. I yep. remember our band had a house, right? And uh, someone was like, hey, we should put our music up on this YouTube thing, you know? Yeah. And half the band was like, I don't know about that. This is weird. No <laughs> one's going to... Who knew? Um, but the, the funny thing is like pre-YouTube uh, in San Diego, they used to have this this station called um, Independent Music Network. So it was like the independent MTV. Mm-hmm. So anyone who would send a video in, they would review it and play it as long as it didn't have any like crazy stuff like, you know, like violence and, you know, pornography or whatever, right? Yeah. So we we're kind of like, oh man, we should make a video and send it into this like TV station thing. Who knew that like a cat playing a keyboard would like <laughs> far surpass anything that happened in the next like you know, <laughs> 30 years or whatever, right? Like so. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a fun time. Um, yeah, then like kind of, I, I would say 
you know, the band thing was, was kind of dying down. And funny enough, I, w- I was working at, at Starbucks at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I worked with this guy and um, he was a producer at Electronic Arts. His name was uh, Marcus Lindblom. And he's actually pretty famous. I think he's one of these, these guys that um, he worked on some kind of Japanese like 8-bit game that came over to the States. And, you know, it's one of these cult hits. But he would work at Starbucks in the morning for just like two hours, right? So he would come in in the morning and like work for two hours and uh, he would get like a free pound of coffee, right? For working X amount mm-hmm. of hours in a month. And that was his whole reason for working at Starbucks. While he was already at EA. Yeah, yeah. He was already, he was, an, I think, a producer at EA uh, San Diego at the time when they had a studio there. Um, well, that's also a way to get your coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at this point, you, you have to have it at, at every job, like free coffee for everybody. But I guess back then... Not sure how it was. At EA at that time, probably more drugs. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Man. I wasn't sure if I should go there, but I, I, I saw definitely I saw a documentary about that stuff. Like EA early days, which were, I don't know, even before then were like kind of wild. Interesting. I think if you go in the early days of like most of these big studios, they're usually like cocaine fueled in some way, shape or form. Well, I think you, you know. can go into the early days of any endeavor. <laughs> yeah. Like- this podcast started out as a complete cocaine show. Yeah. Complete tender. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's like, man, I don't know what those guys really, you know, had the energy in the early days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They worked 14 hours a day. How? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Children, uh, don't do drugs. We are doing this podcast on state money. <laughs> just, just. To, I'm not sure if we need to declare stuff like that, but yes. we are joking here. Yeah. All right. Not a, <laughs> Mo- moving on. We are not in, uh, you know, Colombia. But anyways, um, yeah. Coffee, coffee, maybe. You know, coffee, coffee, coffee. So yeah. Sanctioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coffee. So uh, the funny thing is, Marcus would. Um, we would just, you know, have time to kind of chat, and I was like, just kind of like, hey, you know, what does it take to get into the games industry? Because back then it was, there was no schools, right? It was kind of like the dark science. It's like, oh yeah, you got to know this guy. And then, you know, maybe if you go in and do this. And so um, I actually started out like, you know, testing and um, I got a job at, at Sony Online at the time, which was doing like EverQuest, EverQuest 2, Star Wars Galaxies, Planetside. So it was really kind of this like, you know, I would say golden age of like MMOs and mm. there are just so many amazing devs. And I kind of, I started out in testing and the great thing about, you know, starting out in testing is you get to kind of see games at their kind of most like broken state and you get kind of like, okay, just by seeing how, you know, your interaction with developers and, and how things work, you could really see like, yeah, okay. Game games are not like, you know, they're not they're not, It's, it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of, a lot of pain, a lot of like, mm-hmm. dude, this guy's been trying to work on this bug for like, you know, the better part of, uh, part of two weeks and uh, it's still not solved, right? So, and uh, so that kind of got me into it. And then um, there's this game called Lords of EverQuest and they're like, hey, uh, we need, you know, does anybody want to know how to build maps, like multiplayer maps? And I was like, hey, I can build some maps. And so uh, me and one of my buddies, uh, kevmo at the time um and kevmo was awesome he just won the the like frozen throne expansion for warcraft 3 i think 
Okay. Like mapping contest or something like that. Ah. So like, I, I really kind of, you know, I had this really amazing guy next to me to bounce ideas off of, but I'd always been interested in like doing level design. So, you know, that was kind of actually my first way in. And, and I would say that was really helpful because it's a very practical thing, right? It's like, how do you set up an encounter? It's, it's not as much like, let's say, like, uh, you know, theoretical thinking about larger game systems, which is important, but it was more of like, okay, I have create this setup and, you know, this is for encounters of this specific level. How do I make this fun? You know, so there's yeah. a lot of sitting in front of something and trying to figure out how to, you know, really build stuff, I guess. So, and this was like early 2000s or? Yeah. Yeah. Let me think, you know, so my daughter was born the day that Star Wars Galaxies launched. Mm -hmm. So that was like 2003. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. I find it like insane. Like we are always saying that games is such a young medium compared to others but then still it's it's been a good while since games have been around and then hearing that at that point in time at at companies like that there's still like this hey guys can anybody like build some some uh, multiplayer levels it's like the how streamlined everything is now and like the way a job description is, is spelled out, like these are the things you can study them. You can like, the industry has evolved so much and it's like, I guess getting harder and harder to be like, just, just to learn anything by picking it up randomly. Well, yeah, I, I think that's one of the kind of benefits of, let's say, you know, starting out in, in QA, right? So the one thing I don't knock is like people who start out in testing because you kind of have to, like figure out quickly like okay these are the things like keeping the mechanic from or you know the system from working right so you have to be able to redesign documentation and understand it you have to be mm -hmm. able to communicate and not be a jerk right like you can get really passive aggressive sometimes when filing a bug you know it's like whenever the user does this thing this always happens this issue has been here for you know 73 yeah. days and it's stopping the game from being fun right that's a bad bug. why yeah. you know that's always yeah. the best passive aggressive why yeah why well, is this still <laughs> or or like you know somebody like uh closes a bug and it's by design and then you <laughs> reopen it because it's like this can't be by design this is the design you know so there's a lot anyways like you you through all that, you kind of learn how to be part of a team, I guess, yeah. right? And if if developers see you as somebody like, okay, this guy really gives a crap, and you know, it, then those opportunities, you know, tend to come your way. And and also, you know, you have to invest in time into it, right? Yeah. So, like uh, the one thing that you know in the early days, it was kind of like, okay, you can be great at your job, but if you know you don't go home and like build stuff or or try to like learn how to 3d model or animate or something to be you know useful in a production like getting a design job especially back in you know the early days was like you know almost like an impossibility mm. people would always say stuff like yeah this is not a you know we don't need ideas people right which is true you know um the the part where you actually get to be creative is a lot more nuanced when you're in like you know design or creative direction yeah so you know, that, that was always kind of my advice when, you know, in the early days when people were like, how do I get into games? It's like, learn a practical skill, right? Like learn mm -hmm. how to program, learn how to do 3D art, learn how to animate, learn how to level design. 
and then like you know through those different channels you know obviously if you're doing more of the visual stuff you can become more of like a you know an art lead and level design and design kind of you know go back and forth and you know like but to your point now it's like now you have different types of level designers right oh this guy is like you know the mission guy this guy is like the actual layout guy this is the you know art one and this is the designer who is more technical and works with the level designers and implementing the mechanics so it's it's a lot more you know you know obviously the size of teams and the budgets are huge so it had to become that way but but even back in the mmo days we still had huge teams right so we Mm. were figuring a lot of that out and um I, i would also say like making an mmo like when you're kind of new to the games industry it was like working on 10 games right? yeah because the, the scale of the problems were so much more big than trying to make like a you know single player um story-based you know kind of game yeah. so many different systems and uh things that work together oh yeah i mean like you know raf coster who i still think is one of the most you know amazing designers that live on the planet like I mean, Star Wars Galaxies, a lot of people forget like how much of a, you know, masterpiece that game was as far as like being like an online community. And, you know, obviously all precursors to World of Warcraft, you know, like <laughs> the, the, you know, 800 pound gorilla that crushed everything. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was a good time to get started. Yeah. And then, you know, after Sony Online, the idea was uh, to move up to, you know, Washington State where like fam- our family was and stuff like that. Because by then, you know, it was my wife and, you know, my daughter. And San Diego is just, you know, it's, it was insanely expensive to try to, let's say, really kick off a life there. So started looking around and um, eventually ended up at, at Microsoft. Also kind of like in an interesting time. I mean, I think Forza was just starting out. So I got to do some stuff with the Jade Empire and kind of see what what made Bioware tick. Mm. And I, I thought that was kind of like a real awakening. It's like, okay, this is what this is how the best guys function, right? And yeah, it was that was a, that was also back then. And this is in like the first Xbox days. Like every time you would turn on your console, and I like hopefully I remember this right. Like Bioware would be able to kind of gather data on on how you were behaving in the game right so and it was like super early days of analytics you know of of like games and stuff like that and i remember talking to some people and they're like oh yeah no bioware is like qa department is it's like you know as as kind of like important to the organization as every other department and they're the ones that are kind of like the keepers of the data Mm -hmm. where they're they're not trying to basically like make any big decisions about the game they're just like oh yeah this is broken this doesn't work and you know here's the the data that you guys do do what you want with it but here it is right and i mean they really pioneered that stuff way before microsoft or anybody did these kind of user test labs and stuff is there anything else that you remember that made bioware tick because i immediately perked up when you said jade empire because i was a huge Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic fan and I thought that was so good and such an amazing gaming experience story-wise back then I was really into story and I I think KOTOR 1 is pretty unbeatable in many ways and then of course I played Jade Empire as well which in which I recognized the and I was a youngin so that's why I'm saying I recognized the oh 
that looks like Kotor. Oh, th those those are the same guys, you know. And obviously, that's already a few years apart. I think. I think Jade Empire was like 2005 or something, and Kotor three years before or something like that. Anyway, do you have anything else on on Bioware? What What do you think made them tick? Like you talked about analytics now. Yeah, well, in the, yeah. If if I remember correct, and I could be wrong about this, um, Kotar was made in Austin, right? A lot of the Sony online guys for Star Wars Galaxies, I think a good chunk of them worked at Bioware Austin on Kotar. So you had people that were kind of coming out of this intense Star Wars development world, and then kind of hooked up with the Bioware people. If, if I'm correct. Yeah, I, th I think that was the case because, you know, the thing about the Star Wars universe, like back then, it was like way, I would say it was way more open. They had some kind of, you know, the, the Melvins, the guardians of the Star Wars lore, but there was a lot of expanded universe books and, you know, all these kind of things with little interesting nuggets. And the thing that I remember about like Kotar, like when I first played it, is like, it, it felt like people understand understood what star wars was about you know oh, like yeah. that and i think that's a huge thing like as as somebody who worked who who saw like star wars galaxies like on in before it, it came out you know star wars galaxies was way more of like you know pick your own adventure in the star wars universe so there were certain things that like you know people People said, like, okay, you know, as an example, you could be a tutu with a Wookiee, like, right? You could, or a Wookiee with a tutu. So it's kind of <laughs> like, well, would Wookiees ever wear tutus, right? And that's not the point. The point is that we we're giving people like a deep, immersive Star Wars experience and they built their own communities, you know, and stuff like that. So that was the point of that. But Kotor was like, I think, one step deeper. It was like, you know, an intense focus on this pocket of lore yeah. that existed in the universe. And it was a pocket of lore where you didn't have to worry about where's Darth Vader. You know, it's like, you know, the, the one thing people don't tell you about like working on games that are IPs is that, you know, they're actually quite restrictive at times, right? Because yeah. you want to do something cool, but it's like, well, that's not really part of, you know, what our IP is about. So that that was a really kind of smart decision to go into kind of like, you know, the old Republic, right? Rather yeah. than the current current day and I, I i even think a lot of star wars now is also hamstrung by the same problem to be honest yeah and they did it really well you, you i think it was something like they they captured a lot of the lore but i think they they were very lore expanding as well i'm like far from a star wars lore expert but i feel like that that i don't know how well there was the movies right and then there were the books at the time kind of and then but for example in kotor you were like you you made your own lightsaber at some point i mean that was yeah. really brilliant just the hero's journey of kind of you end up on a on an enclave planet that's full of um yodas essentially w yeah. without anybody knowing what that race is that was i think there as well traded as a mystery so they didn't have a name they were just these little guys you know but uh, that was the original Jedi enclave or whatever, and then you would make your own lightsaber. And I feel like this whole make your own lightsaber, for example, is is a thing that came up later in the movies, right? Like in the in the new trilogy. Yeah, and yeah. The, and I feel like that might have been even pi been pioneered by Kotor. I might be completely wrong about this, 
But at least what I'm pretty sure about is that you had it in visual form for the first time, right? I mean, a game is close enough to to a movie, I would say, and um, and yeah, you you like had to collect the uh, best car crystal or whatever it was called and put that stuff together and you could like based on the crystal you would have the color of the saber and it had this thing and it matters you know this this is this is real and yeah also big big choose your own adventure energy without worrying about where where the hell Darth Vader is <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's like where's right? where's Luke and Leia you know yeah, like, exactly oh. right these lore restrictions that you would questions that you would have to definitely answer but yeah you just don't have to yeah, um, one one of also like I, I mean I'm I'm pretty sure that was part of the Star Wars lore before Kotar, but there are a lot of other things that I think you know like vibroblades, right? Like right. that's a whole thing, you know. And and now I love like that the sort of Mandalorian part of the universe is expanding, you know, because true, there's a lot of this stuff that's kind of like before the kind of current Republic, there was all of this kind of like you know hundreds of years of like you know conflict between these great like warrior civilizations you know and obviously the you know the the mandalorians are like the spartans basically right of of the universe but yeah it, it's in any case i think you know like i i rem it's so funny because i remember before getting into games seeing like a somebody they announced like oh there's someone's making a star wars mmo and i was like man that would be so amazing to you know work on and stuff like that and, you know, I eventually did get to to work on it, you know, in a limited capacity, but it was great just being around it. And there's just so many kind of like amazing memories. I remember like, you know, QA, someone was laughing. It's like, like bug number 50,000 was like, there's not enough love in the Star Wars. <laughs> or somebody put some funny bug in, you know, like that. And um, so that, you know, like it, and, and also like at that time, you know, it it was kind of like, let's say, there was not like a kind of like, that's the best way to put it. Now I think games are a lot more kind of like planned out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes sense, right? It's like, you know, that game was planned out, but it it's still kind of like, you know, you're making an MMO where there's not, you know, there's maybe only like a handful of them. There's like maybe Ultima Online, EverQuest, yeah. you know, Dark Age of Camelot, you know, a couple other ones. But people were still trying new things. Like, they didn't really know, you know, what what it was going to, you know, turn out to be. And then you had this massive IP. And the funny thing was, you know, like I believe, like you know, the 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 early numbers were really good, but then there was a sharp fall off. But the thing was, is that you know, still to this day, that's still one of my favorite Star Wars things done because you know you had a whole kind of like you know, like hanging out around the cantina was a thing. You know, yeah, like, oh, let's hang around and someone's going to dance for us, right? I mean, this is, I guess, from from like development perspective, but also from from like a player perspective, it's a lot more streamlined now. As a as a like, I mean, MMOs have been my go to games since the since I got access to internet, basically, and so there there was so much more player involvement, like RP, back then. Yeah, because yeah. the games were just more rudimental. Yeah, and, yeah. And now it's like, I mean, that's a discussion in the in the MMO community overall, like why we see uh, World of Warcraft Classic coming back and all that stuff. But I mean, it's even those experiences are getting more streamlined 
because you just can't, I guess, like reach a huge audience and still work with like the basic mechanics and basic like systems that you used to get away with back then. But it definitely forced players to put more of themselves into the game. Yeah, yes, definitely. Well, one of the things about Star Wars Galaxies, like when it originally launched, is being a Jedi, becoming a Jedi was a mysterious thing, right? And I think, you know, as like kind of there was some pressure to, to change the game up a little bit, like I think once the game, be, it became like everyone wants to be a Jedi now, right? Because it's, yeah. it's the cool part of the, uh, one of the cool bits of the Star Wars universe. Then there were less people that did the role-playing stuff because yeah. it was just like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, like, like that i always you know even even back in the early days gamers always have this min max kind of mindset especially mm -hmm. playing any kind of rpg you're just like this this natural tendency i think for us humans to go like how do i just become so powerful right yeah <laughs> and like so like as soon as like well now you can become a jedi here's how here's the blueprint then all of a sudden it's like everyone's like hey why is there anyone like where's the community all like everyone's trying to be a jedi now mm. and uh you know but if you ever have a chance, you should look up what happened to the first Jedi in Star Wars Galaxies. It's truly kind of like a forgotten momentous occasion. Mm -hmm. uh, like I, I, I believe, like basically the first Jedi, Jedi, you know, uh, a bunch of yeah, a bunch of bounty hunters had this kind of like secret enclave where you know, as soon as the first Jedi was uh, discovered, like or they popped up, they would go and basically all attack him at once, right? Wow. <laughs> like, so I think that's what happened. I believe the, if memory serves me correct, yeah. like the person that was the first Jedi was just like, you know, whoa, look at me. I'm a Jedi, you know? And, and like, he was mugged. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, just mugged like pretty soon thereafter. And like, maybe it was this time or another time, but then I think the lightsaber was for sale on eBay or something like that back in the day. Yeah. Like something, wow. there was some funny thing about it that, that I remember like people were like, Hey, did you hear what happened to the first Jedi? It's like, no, it's like, yeah, it's like, uh, Apparently, and, and that's that, that's what I kind of also love about like online games and online communities is it's as, as a developer, it makes your life more difficult, obviously, because, you know, us humans are very like, you know, unpredictable. The one thing you can always count on is they're going to create chaos in your game in some way, shape or form. Yeah, they're, they're going to figure out how to break it or do something, you know, and and that was kind of like, you know, when you, when you get the game out there and you see what people are doing, it's it's. As a developer, it's like, wow, they care enough to actually, you know, try to circumvent the rules to get ahead. And I mean, and, and I assume it was also like a big pain in the ass as well. Oh, definitely. I, I mean, first of all, I, I remember like being so mad coming from, I'm, I might have told this on the podcast before, so listeners, I'm sorry if that came up. But when I used to play Ultima Online and then when World of Warcraft came out, Everybody in the friend group was obviously like, "Oh crap, man! This is this is it. This is the this is the thing. Like we will play." And I was so mad at at other players who would like give silly names to the to their characters. And I was like writing reports to like Blizzard saying like, "You can't have your <laughs> character be called like Panhandle or whatever like stupid names. Like this is not RP." And they would be like, "Well, this is not an RP server." And I mean. That initially already changed, like how, what kind of group of people played MMOs and like RP games. And then you had the division of like RP servers for the more hardcore people. And yeah. like, but 
the amount of just people adding adding chaos to the game as you said like the everybody coming home in the evenings after work or school and starting to play and and like there wasn't much to do in the at max level in in world of warcraft like when you're playing for a while so you just met up in a town and just started fighting the other faction and just like that would be <laughs> your whole evening yeah exactly and then they they disallowed it because it used to crash the servers but i mean it was the most fun thing to do yeah. but yeah well i mean if like you i mean you spoke about uo right so that that was like you know a learning experience right it's yeah. like talk about like this this kind of like onboarding like the onboarding in that game was like the in internet is a dangerous place right <laughs> that was the onboarding trust no one lock up everything after you leave it <laughs> you know like there's so like I remember like the whole kind of, you know, like griefing became like almost like a subclass. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was like, I remember what, once I was just in some newbie area and I was like, the hell is somebody like kiting a demon through the newbie zone? <laughs> right. And it's just like, you just see like, you know, people getting smashed and they're just like, Hey, what's going on? <laughs> like, and it's, it's, well, it, you know, I think as, as a developer, you see stuff like that and you, you just can't help but like you know look at it and and just kind of laugh right and yeah the reason you can laugh about it because you know there's like some meeting happening you know at like uh you know who was it at the time we did ultimate was it sierra i can't remember yes like so the sierra office is like what are we going to do about this you know like because it's always funny when it happens to somebody else's game when it happens definitely, to your game yeah. it's not very funny right but but yeah it's it's, it's definitely a trip and also like some of the there's all this all these shenanigans that happen in mmos that you know we can't really talk about because it's a government uh you know type of thing but <laughs> yes. like you know whenever you put a group of people who are deeply involved in it in a universe and you know they, they start getting attracted to each other it's just like yeah. all right like if you know if there's a dark corner in a zone just stay away because you're not going to like what you hear like near there you know <laughs> <laughs> it's like i don't know if you know it's like ixars and uh dwarves are exactly compatible but whatever right <laughs> 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 and and you better don't break rp in that like yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> otherwise you're getting banned oh man Ah, this is a throwback, but I I want to try and reel it in a little bit and like sure. <laughs> because this back, could be a podcast the about the good old times. Cool. I I assume for the whole episode, but like I we still need to figure out like how the hell you came to Germany. Uh yeah, well I mean I was at Microsoft You're at the Microsoft. time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I real I wasn't digging working there. If I'm being honest, right? Uh huh. It's like I, I felt like. I, I just came from somewhere like Sony Online, where it was very kind of like, like way way more of kind of like game developer sort of you know like atmosphere. And at Microsoft at the time, it's not like we we're developing any. Well, there are a couple of games internally, but it was more of like you were kind of like I would say part of like the publishing apparatus more than developers, right? Mm -hmm. So it immediately was kind of like you know the relationship with developers like there were some like kind of you know good producers but there were also some like bad vibes as well you know yeah. and for me at the time there was a lot going on so it was kind of like all right well you know um 
Washington state, like the rain sucks compared to California. So it was like, all right, why did we move back up to the Northwest? Right. Well, it was so rainy. And then it was also kind of like the, the time where George W. Bush Jr. was, you know, like Jr. was president. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, kind of getting, a, you know, a bit serious for a moment. Like, you know, my wife is a, a type one diabetic, right? And, and we we're kind of getting disillusioned because we were, you know, like she needs insulin to stay alive. And we're kind of like, man, it's, it's so weird that here we are, you know, and you could have the best health insurance and you're still paying like more for a bottle of insulin than we would pay when we were in, you know, San Diego. We would just go across the border, you know, to Mexico and buy our insulin. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like, what, like, what is this we're paying into? So it was, I, I think as much of a like kind of life change and, and also like, Hey, you know, let's, let's just go see what's out there, you know, kind of, I, I would say if there's, there's one thing about like, you know, my wife and I is like, we're, we're fairly adventurous people. So she was six months pregnant when we came to Germany the first time. So imagine being yeah. six months pregnant, not speaking the language and like, Oh, we're going to go, you know, uh, work at a game studio in Germany. But I, I also like work-wise, I needed to change. I needed to feel like got back to kind of like being a developer again. Yeah. Um, so that brought us to the South of Germany, um, to a, a, a filling in Schwenigen, I think was a, in the, in the black forest. That's where my son yeah, was born. That's, uh, yeah. Well pronounced, I guess. Thanks. <laughs> There, there was a studio there called, I think it was called Tea and Turtles at the time. And I was like, ah, small studio, you know, like, let's just go try it out, right? We can always come back to the US. It's not like it's going anywhere. Yeah. You know, um, so we went there for a while and, you know, it was, it, you know, honestly a bit of a culture shock. And mm-hmm. um, it was kind of like you go from, let's say, you know, a big house in the US and kind of like, you know, everything's super convenient and then all of a sudden you're in the south of germany it's like the winter time and you're just yeah. like oh, what did we get into here you know <laughs> <laughs> funny you know funny enough like we yeah. we actually just you know when you have a i think a bunch of you know expats you kind of grow really close a lot of the guys on that team i still talk to and they've a lot of them have gone on to do great things like you know uh, john mamias who was on the witcher like you know uh, he was there at the time and um also a guy named Jeremy Huxley who went on to do, you know, a bunch of the like Uncharted, uh-huh. like and all of those games. So it's it's kind of like, you know, the games industry isn't as as big as you think, right? It's yeah. The people you work with, they go on to other places, you go on to other places, and you sometimes you work with them again, you know. Mm. So that was that was really cool because I, I would say there were also other Americans there and and for for whatever you know like issues the studio had and trust me every studio has issues yes. like they were really good at <laughs> getting good talent there i and need so. to figure out like what kind of i mean i'm not perfect at german games industry lore but that was a time i wasn't in it yet so i need to figure out like more about the studio like after the podcast because that sounds super interesting yeah they became a coney and they did a game called parabellum mm-hmm. like eventually so the game, and I think Parabellum, funny enough, was published by Sony Online. So it it was kind of like, yeah, and it, that's what it became. It went from Teen Turtles, they renamed it to a Kony, and then they launched the game Parabellum, which funny enough was kind of like um, really similar to what we were prototyping early on. And, uh, you know, they, basically when I got there, what we were prototyping was Payday. Like, yeah. So, 
like back in the day, like before Payday, you know, came out, it's also that kind of, it also teaches you about the games industry. It's like, usually if there's a good idea, there's almost some kind of like natural inclination for us developers, even if we don't know about each other's projects. Yeah. You know, there's always this weird kind of like, oh man, it's exactly what I was thinking about doing, you know? Yeah, really interesting time there. And after that, I was in Spain for a while. So um, I went to uh, Madrid and I worked at the studio that did Commandos, mm -hmm. like um, Pyro Studios, Pyro, to meet so many great developers down there as well. And a lot of those guys also went on to do, you know, great things. Um, but like at the time, they were kind of like the place in, in Spain. And I was a huge fan of Commandos. It's like, Still today, like, you know, Commandos 1 and 2 are probably some of my, I mean, they invented kind of the stealth genre, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Stealth tactics. Real throwback. I remember getting Commandos in like, uh, I think in like a computer bitch bile, you know, like, uh, yeah. like a magazine. And it was <laughs> the it demo, was, the demos. Yeah. I think full version, maybe even. Oh, wow. Like, early, yeah. I don't know. And which years are we talking at the moment? When did you go to, so, so your daughter was born in Germany, I, I take it. No, my son was born in uh, Germany, so I have two ah, kids. Yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah. my daughter was born the day Star Wars Galaxy's launched, and right. my son was born about like yeah when we in Germany for like three months. But a um, bit later, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so man, I don't even remember. Let me think when my son was born. Two thousand five, right? Yeah, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. So around mm -hmm. that time. So this is right before like I mean we're. You know, I don't want to get too much into the details, but like Mercury Steam started off of the like some of the team there and they did like a horror game. And so, yeah, there was a bunch of things. And and mobile was just like slowly becoming a thing. Like and uh, the, the next I was in Mallorca for three years at another studio there. The studio there was called Tragnarian. Also, just I really quick, just like the quality of the developers you had in Spain. At, at the time, it was kind of like almost like considered backwoods because like, you know, a lot of Spanish, they, you know, Spanish guys, they, they stayed local. Mm -hmm. They never ventured out, you know, eventually they kind of did. And, you know, they started like doing some great, great stuff. I mean, um, yeah. So, so I think like, I, it was really weird. I was just like, at that time, like this was before the Spanish game scene exploded, but a lot of the yeah. people that went on to do great things, like I you know, still call some of them my friends, you know, I chat with them every once in a while. And and these are like, you know, highly qualified developers, like really, really good out of university. And they just kind of like came into an ecosystem where there was no money, you know? So mm -hmm. like, and then it, it took for like outside, you know, people to come in and, and start these other studios for it to really take off. But it was really strange. Like guys like, Hey, how do you go work in, you know, other places? And it's like, you guys are perfectly talented enough. You just have to put together a CV and apply, you know? Yeah. You know, so but was, this is usually how it, how it works for countries or, or places where there's no developed scene yet. You need people who took a leap, ventured somewhere and then brought back knowledge, might maybe brought back some capital to like, found studios or start companies and like definitely raise the bar for everybody oh yeah yeah a hundred percent and and sometimes it's not even like you really like let's say you know going like oh this is how you do it sometimes it's just like 
letting them know that they're good enough, I guess, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, oh, you guys are really, I mean, like, dude, you're, you know, your character models are amazing, right? You're like, you know, top tier guy. So I think just, there was a lot of that happening. Um, you know, some of, some of the guys that, that were there, they, you know, went on to great things at Ninja Theory and even um, Cyberpunk, you know, and, and these were mm-hmm. kind of young game designers that, you know, barely spoke any English, but, you know, now I talk to them. It's like, my God, like you guys have like leveled up way past my ability to speak a foreign language. Like <laughs> it's like you, you are now a functioning, like your, your English is just about as good as mine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you guys are kicking ass, you know, so that definitely like a lot of that growth. Um, and then like I, I was in Mallorca for, for some years and, and great, you know, the, the one thing I would have to say, like, I feel like my Spanish years were all kind of this blur of like living super high quality of life, but not getting much done. If I'm being <laughs> honest, Like, and it, it wasn't because of the studios or anything. It's just like, you know, um, there it's, it's hard, right. In the games industry. I don't think people really realize it. You know, if, if you're not like situated in London or some of the epicenters of like game development, like, you know, uh, then it's hard to get like somebody to come out and take a look at your studio. Yeah. Right. So this is why, like, you know, you have to really go to where the shows are and try to, you know, get people to, to trust that you can, you know, make a game, but no, no, you know, most of the times publishers don't want to be the first one to give your studio a chance. Right. Yeah. It's, it's always the thing. And then I was going to head back to the States at that point, you know, with the family. And then I, you know, decided uh, to, to look at Crytek based on a friend's recommendation. It, it was an interesting time because they were trying to bring together like a senior prototyping team, like guys that could just kind of self-organize and function and build something cool. And uh, so I was hired at that time. Um, and then eventually, you know, Crisis 2, um, we were kind of, let's say, consumed into that team because uh, they're just like, you know, typical too much stuff, you know, needed to get done to get this thing to gold master. And so, yeah, I worked on, on crisis two as a like code lead level designer with a, a guy named CJ, um, who I think he's now in, in Ubisoft. CJ, CJ, and CJ. Yeah, it was a joke. It was a thing. Like yeah. <laughs> just a liability CJ. Did you say that to him ever? <laughs> but yeah, he, where's that from? That's San Andreas. Yeah. Yeah. That's San Andreas. Right. Yeah. Did you recognize it PJ? I did. I did. I oh, okay. Good, good. My man, Impressive. my man. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. yeah so and cj to, to be fair is probably one of the best level designers the world has ever produced like he <laughs> wow. um he uh he did aztec and like a bunch of the counter-strike stuff he was part of that team oh my god and so it's the same guy that actually worked on far cry right so like there's like i think also when you're in in games you kind of see pedigrees i would say right it's like oh your line starts here and then it goes here here and here and so you know you could definitely see that I, I really tried to be a sponge and learn everything I could from a lot of these really talented people I worked with. And I, and I feel like that's also one of the keys about like, you know, growing in the games industry is like, you constantly have to be curious about like, okay, well, what could come next? What could, what could be like the thing that really makes this special, you know? And yeah, and then I was at, you know, I was at Crytek for a number of years, Rise, Son of Rome, helped with some of the the stuff with um, Warface and then was able to do like complete pivot um, did uh, the climb and Robinson, the journey, you know, so 
that was that was like a super interesting time because it was like VR, right? Like it's like at the time I was kind of like, I don't know if I believe in this VR shenanigans, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh back back then I think the the Oculus this was before like the Rift headset. And they had this really cool thing where all developers could just post their demos and you could just download it and play it. And it just became this kind of like hub of creativity. And I remember putting on the headset and I downloaded this thing called Ashes. And I don't even remember who made it, but it was just kind of like you put on the VR headset and then they told you the story about the origin of the universe, but you were actually experiencing it, right? I remember mm-hmm. thinking like, holy crap, this VR stuff is really amazing, you know? Like it, it was a completely new paradigm. And yeah, shortly thereafter, I was asked along with the executive producer, Elijah, to put together a small team and start looking into VR and, and put something together. And um, we we started out actually with Robinson the Journey. And then part of those mechanics became um, the climb, right? Just like a subset of the climbing mechanics. But yeah, I mean, we had a super amazing team. Like one of the guys on the team is actually a rock climber. And so that whole kind of like, it's if you kind of think of it, right, just put it in context, it's like you're at Crytek, right? They're really known for their shooters, yeah. you know, realistic graphics, you know, type of games. And then you kind of got a pitch. And you're like, hey, we got a, I got an idea. We're going to make a game with no shooting. <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> like, idea. <laughs> like what? You know, um, and and that came kind of on uh, there, like the the whole inspiration of of robinson the journey and the mechanic became the climb was um crytek had their origins and they did a demo i think for nvidia like dinosaur island or something like that and it originally started where we're like hey like we should do something you know for for this show why don't we like revisit dinosaur island and so i think i, I don't remember if it was chevot or Alani who asked us to take a look at that it's probably chevot and then we're like, hey, maybe we could, you know, like use this as a springboard for kicking off a game. And so we did like a demo that was kind of like you're climbing up this, you know, you could find it on on YouTube and stuff where you're climbing up this rock face and you have this like automatic pulley system and all these dinosaurs are kind of like, you know, flying by you and stuff like that. So it's almost like a roller coaster type thing. Um, and <laughs> like, I think we won an award for it or something like that, like best of gdc or something like that for something and it's like this isn't even a game but <laughs> it eventually led to you know like hey like if we had to make a game about a dinosaur island what would it be and then we came up with the concept that was like oh it's about a boy and his dinosaur like a boy and his dog right mm-hmm. and, uh, not to say that certain netflix shows didn't uh you know copy getting lost in a dinosaur you know island with uh <laughs> but you know, it's things happen, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> so, but anyways, like, yeah, so we were doing that became Robinson, the journey. And, uh, we pitched it to, I think his name was Jason. One of the founders of naughty dog was also one of the early Oculus guys. I can't remember his name, but he was, he was like, I like that. Like, it's just like, just that. I just want that. Right. And we're <laughs> like, okay. We're still like, this is still like super blocky graphics, but you know, credit to him. Like, you know, not a, like I would say a typical executive where he's looking at the graphics. He's probably thinking like, oh, it's Crytek. I don't have to worry about the graphics. Yeah. But like, he really, really liked the game. 
It's like, I love this. It's like, this is cool. I haven't seen anything like this. So that led to the climb. And then Robinson, the journey um, turned into its own thing with Sony at the time. Um, but a lot of the same people worked on both of the, they, like the VR team was kind of spread between the two titles at the time. Yeah. So I, I feel like, you know, I think, you know, you asked before, you know, we're doing the podcast, like what, what was this time? And, and I felt for me, you know, we worked on Rise, Son of Rome, and it was just meant to be kind of a cinematic romp, you know, mm-hmm. and, but it was like, you know, it got stuck between the Sony, Microsoft, like, you know, kind of like a battle that was going on for the next generation consoles. And, um, you know, I, I truly believe like, okay, this was supposed to turn into like, you know, like we we can do a lot more with where this the game's supposed to go. But, you know, we literally had like 18 months, you know, from the time that we started to the time the game was launched. I think it's maybe 18, maybe 20 months if you consider kind of some concept discovery. Yeah. So that whole game was done in like less than two years. Oh, and, yeah. And if you if you look at it now, I mean, you could see like the attention to detail and the, you know, the quality of the art. And and also, you know, the, the combat system um, was a lot more difficult in, in production, but it was kind of nerfed because it was seen, you know, as being too difficult. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was still kind of like, you know, 20 months trying to, you know, build something. And, you know, the launch title thing, it's, it's a real thing, right? It's like you, when you align with the publishers, like, okay, here, like, what are your top priorities? Give us your top three. And, you know, number one is date, right? It's like the date does not move, right? You know, number two was this thing they called cinematic storytelling, right? And then I think gameplay was like a three or maybe even a four, right? I think Mm -hmm. like number three might have been like visceral, you know, or something like that. And so very high level concepts. But if you kind of (laughs) see what what we pulled off in 20 months, I would say, you know, we pulled it off by the skin of our teeth and uh, it was it was extremely interesting. And, and by the way, like we had rise running on the Xbox one, like console at E3 that year. And like, we were one of the few games that was actually running on the console. Yeah. So like at, at some point people are like, do you guys need PCs for your demo? It's like, no, no, we're on the console. Like, you know, so, you know, kudos to, to, you know, that like a lot of the, the engineers, the guys at Crytek, you know, like yeah. Nico Schultz and a lot of these people, like the, I mean, they're the top, right? The top of the game. So can I have a work. dummy explanation yeah. why what you just said is special? Because I was trying to get it, but I didn't get it. Why oh, was it like, special? That- I mean, a AAA game, you know, done in the time and then going from something like the CryEngine and then having to work on a, a console that's kind of two PC generations behind. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's like, it's like trying to like, you know, fit a fire hose, like of like, <laughs> like through like a straw or something. Right. Okay. So, okay. Okay. Um, yeah. We, okay, we had so to that's invent an impressive engineering feat, right? Oh, definitely. Optimization. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Optimization. Not only that, but what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, um, the cry engine was a first person engine, right? Mm hmm. So now, now imagine on top of that, you add the tech debt of having to make it work for third person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like a, a lot of the challenges were really just like, okay, we want to do this. Well, there's not enough time because we need to make 
a work in a stable way and you know simple things like when you reference like who the player is right in like the first person like the player was the first person camera but now the player is a third person right and it's like everything changes right And, and how that all works so it was it was definitely a struggle but also i think we're fortunate you know um early on we kind of knew what it was to be honest like we knew like okay we'd love to to make the triple a game that we want to make as far as like combat and and gameplay but you know a lot of the early mechanics we had in there just had to be cut there was just no time to do it i mean um if you look at at the game there was the introduce introduction of damocles which was like kind of like you know alter ego of the main character like there's supposed to be a whole bunch of missions where you played as that stealth character so it's it's things like that when you're making a you know um uh like a, a launch title that is just kind of like you just have to be judicious right it's just like yeah we'd love to do it but we got to kill it you know it's not enough mm-hmm. time so that that was really it was tough coming off of that but i felt that like that then going into vr was kind of like for a lot of us that were on the team it was just kind of like oh wow this is like just really fun being you know trying new and, and crazy things after being inside of the pressure cooker of that project but yeah it was it wasn't easy but yeah. i was before the podcast i was just like checking back on like because i i never played rise yeah but i I, it's from a time when I was still, I'm not even sure to be fair, because I know that I'm completely out of touch with like games and like what's current AAA stuff, media and everything. But I I was looking up the old escapist video of like zero punctuation Yahtzee on Rise because (laughs) I mean, there wasn't a game that he didn't shit on, but he, 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 I was looking this up like today, even because I thought, well, it, from that time there must have been a video in on it. But it's like so interesting to see back back then from like just being a player and then knowing more about development and like that like the stuff he touches on in there is like the loading times and on the console and like of course he was playing it on the Xbox and not a PC, and so like the things that he he says it, it makes so much more sense putting it into context when you know all the stuff that you just told. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's like the expectations on a game and on a studio in that amount of time on that technology and then putting it out even and being able to do that. And then just like it shows that the player base just does not understand how games work, like how they are made. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I would even go further than that. I think like, you know, um, anybody that's able to put out a game, they immediately get like a level of respect for me. It's like, yeah, not easy. Like, okay, building an online community before, in your game before launch, building buzz, not easy. Good job, team, right? And I think when you're when you come from a development perspective, like, I've never worked on a game where I don't feel like, oh man, if we just had another six months, right? It would have been yeah. what we wanted it to be. But you know, the truth is, is that like, you know, making making a a great game, it's like it's kind of like having a great sports team. Like mm-hmm. the right things have to come together at the right time. You have to build momentum, and then you have to just like carry that momentum as far as you can before you know the wheels fall off the thing. 
And in certain like productions, like, and, and I would say probably around the launch of any console, right? Like every one of these, you know, like whether it's Sony or Microsoft, everyone is pushing to have a great lineup for players that makes them obviously want to buy the console and show them what the vision of next gen is supposed to be. Right. Yeah. And if you kind of think of it like that, that felt like the last real console launch, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Xbox one and PlayStation, um, it's a PS4, I think. Four. Yep. Yeah. Like the PS5 and the new Xbox, it was, it was kind of almost like it's a little, slightly bumped up in quality. And it was, it was more of like a, a, a long transition to this stuff. And I think there was, there was just this kind of like, you know, um, this, this, like, I don't know, this, this natural tendency in, in as a developer is you kind of learn like, yeah, well, we can't really do it like we did it before because streaming games is probably more important that we have a solid lineup of classics plus a couple of new titles. Mm. But yeah. I mean, it was, it was like, um, pretty, pretty intense. I mean, like th this is kind of, I, I would say like, I, I've talked to a few developers and, and people explain it a different way, but like, I feel like there are kind of like black holes in my memory. And the, you know, that's why I'm not good with dates of past stuff. It's because like you get so into making the game and if you really love and care about it, like you get into it and all of a sudden kind of like it went from, you know, spring and it's like winter again, you know, it's yeah. Like, well, what, what did I do those months in that year? You know, it's like <laughs> driving your car home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> and sometimes like, you know, it, sometimes you feel like, yeah, I think I went into a room and then like I came out and it was like a different year, you know? And <laughs> for me, rise was definitely kind of, you know, and we had to ramp up a team. So there's like all of these things. And, you know, um, it, like we were all gearing towards like, working on a, a second iteration we already started like concept discovery and pre-production so the fact that like you know it, it couldn't get worked out and, and didn't happen was a uh, definitely a bummer for a lot of us on it because it like it's i don't want to say that we were like okay we're going to make a second one. we're going to have a chance to fix a lot of the things that we didn't get a chance to do but that's the truth of it right it's like you kind of got to go all right let's take out these features for the next game let's take and to make that date like some of these meetings where you have to cut things, right. It's, they're yeah. really, they're contentious, man. They're, it's like, it's like, you know, uh, you're, you're like debating, the, like who, like imagine you're in a scenario where someone's like, all right, we only have enough food to feed yeah. 2 billion people, you know, <laughs> this year, like who, who's going to get the food? And all yeah. of a sudden it's like, trolley problem. Yeah. Yeah. So your darlings at a very probably emotional, contentious, uh, layer because you know all ideas have been birthed by somebody somehow at some yeah. point and yeah. by the way you're not the like when you're a launch title you're not necessarily the only person at that table right yeah it's like you've got you know the microsoft people the crytech people then you got the tech team you know all this kind of stuff um so yeah it's, it's there's definitely you know more at play than why can't these guys just make a good game you know and i would say you reach a certain point and you're kind of like all right the reality is these are the features we have to land to the best quality that we can. And there is no changing the date. There's no renegotiating the contract. It just needs to get done. And that's, that's almost like a, uh, you know, it could do two things. One is it could really deflate you or it can just kind of like energize you to get it done. And 
I feel with Rise, it was kind of like we had a point where like, ah, oh, this man, this is hard. But then, you know, the team rose to the occasion, pulled it together, you know. Um, and what what I look now is like actually it's it's interesting. If you look at Steam, right? <laughs> like which I would say is a way more harsh critic than game critics, mm-hmm. you know, all these years later, like people understood what Rise was supposed to be, right? Dude, I saw this like in my mind that this was so weird. Yeah. How all the all the critics were giving it like six ish, or or like around five even. I know, <laughs> and, and on Steam is like a nine out of ten. Yeah, and and bro, there are what? games that get so, like get seventy that you can't even finish. Like, yeah, because yeah. of bugs, right? So okay, yeah. okay. So I have two questions. So sure, sure. Um, maybe because okay, so obviously, very lots of story. Very enjoyable. It's one of those podcasts where just recording the podcast is like listening to one because you have such a yep. good story and it's just there. And thank you for that. It's really nice. Springing back into action as an interviewer. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I had a feeling that um, in my research, I was like, ah, interesting. Rise was kind of like a flop question mark, you know? And, um, now you're talking about it a lot and I can feel your um, a bit of your emotion under it. And it's like, yeah, that wasn't great, right? Like you you put a lot of in uh, a lot in there. You you highlighted now a lot of things that were very important, like quick turnaround, optimized for the console, like a lot of like great achievements. Um and um it is well, and it had this strange reception. So I can obviously there's a bit of a redemption arc here. Um, that's needed maybe and uh, so that's my first question which is if you say now people are getting what it was supposed to be maybe you could explain that and maybe after that we could um, finish how you got to berlin yeah yeah i'll get there eventually <laughs> uh so what yeah, was I mean, it supposed to be well i mean what the was? thing was it it's it was just supposed to be this like kind of like uh what is it what did i call it before like it was like this uh you know cinematic kind of story right i mean it was it was kind of like uh we're there to tell a story you know have a solid we knew we'd probably come you know the game was tested before we knew we'd probably come in at a rough you know whatever six to seven hours you know but we said all right like the least we could do is we is we could make it like really set up the the combat or the stuff with these kind of like you know cinematics is that was the big thing right like people forget like okay if you look at the quality of the storytelling especially like you know the characters and the artwork that's obviously what the attention was put onto right and so like it was never meant to be an assassin's creed mm-hmm. right like it's, it was never meant to be a 20 plus hour game it's just there wasn't enough time and you know and and to to also just to kind of like you know double back to what i said it's like it was just supposed to be a launch title where you could come in like okay i just spent like whatever 500 bucks on this console play this game and and go yeah that's you know wow next gen is you know about these kind of like next level graphics and you know gameplay uh, it could have been better but i definitely think you know they'll fix it in like the second game right so mm-hmm. that whole cinematic storytelling thing, I mean, 
a lot of people don't know this, but we had like 15 performance captured like characters, right? If you look at the quality of like Nero and, you know, like Mar there's there's a lot of kind of like underlying effort and achievement that went into telling a competent story. And especially one like, you know, we hired a, a movie director like early on to kind of help us frame what the game would be. And I think, you know, if you look at like once again the the kind of like line of games, right? I feel like Rise and the Order were kind of sort of going for the same thing, right? And then God of War comes out and it's like that vision, but realized, right? With really, mm. really good gameplay. Mm. And I think like, you know, it's hard to separate out Rise from that arc of games that exist now and that AAA, you know, and AAA games. You know, we like people like the, the camera work, you know, that, that was done that, you know, when I played God of War the first time, as an example, I was like, ah, that's what they did. They just made the gameplay 180 degrees rather than worry about the camera behind the player. That mm -hmm. was smart, right? And so it's, it's those kind of things where you see like, okay, it's place in history. And of course it was, you know, reviewed negatively. But I, I do think when you talk about the redemption arc, it's like, yeah, but to me, actually, when I look at Steam, I don't care if somebody paid six bucks for the game or, you know, 60, like people generally think that it was, you know, worth their time more than just like the, the money part. Right. Yeah. So I think that's at the end, it's like, you know, for everyone who worked really hard on that game, it kind of, it got its respect like mm. eventually. And once again, graphically, the thing that Crytek does, you know, or is really known for, like it, it just really just, you know, even today, if you look at the comparisons, it's still kind of pretty damn competitive, you know, um, yeah. stuff like that. that. So yeah. to me, that's, that's the thing. It's like, you know, not, not every game is going to be the, the like, you know, crazy system seller, but you know, and on a more personal, like developer note, like you gotta, you know, the amount of effort it takes to get anything out and, you know, just think of, think of like when you're working with, um, you know, publishers as kind of like, there's like 75 editorial boards, right? Yeah. And it's like, okay, hey, we're doing this. Uh, I don't know if I do that. That's a little like, uh, like, okay, we're going to do this. But I don't know about that, you know? So you're kind of navigating these waters as you're trying to make something that you're just kind of like, well, people are going to like this anyways. We're going to do it, right? So it definitely had some, you know, like that I feel now looking back, it was like that at the time was really, you know, I felt, bad obviously for the team like working on it but now i feel like a yeah like and a lot of the people that that worked on that game went on to bigger projects and brought a lot of what we did there into other things fantastic i think i'm about to buy it for a tenor because i go for it really, i could really do with the little with the hacking and slashing and quick time and cool story and crytek graphics so um Good, always good. Funny, real quick. Good, last good. funny story yeah, sure. is like, I don't know, maybe like two years after the game launched, I think the the director Peter was at in Rome, and he's like, "Hey, look what I see!" And like somebody was selling t shirts in Rome with the gladiators, <laughs> like the character from Rise on it. I yeah. was like, "Hey, I you know, I, I guess it left an impression somewhere, you know." Like, <laughs> <laughs> also, really, I think maybe a good a good time to re remarket the game because of the mimetic truth that has been found out in recent weeks that all men think about the Roman Empire at mm -hmm. all times. True, right? Indeed. Apparently. Yeah. I don't. 
but I'm going to play Rise, Son of Rome, and maybe I'll finally be a man. So, <laughs> because I have some Roman Empire to think about. Well, and, and to anybody who hears this, right, we know it's not historically correct. Let's just get like. So many people are like, yeah. this is you not have, history. You dramatized a piece of media? No, PJ. Yeah. It's it's yeah. funny because like you know you talk about every like you do not realize like like when you're doing research for a Roman game, so much Roman stuff has been done. Like you know of a time period, it's like you had Rome the TV show, you had all these old like Roman. Yeah. It's just like so much stuff, and so when we set out to do it, we're like, all right, like. At the, at the end of this, we have to have our own vision of Rome, right? And, mm -hmm. at the, and when it came down to it, it's kind of like, like, you know, of course, historical Rome is enough, right? Yeah. But when you're making a video game, it's like, we're not here to recreate, you know, um, what it was like in the Roman Empire. That's for like, you know, games like Eu Europa Universalis or like, you know, the um, yeah. like Rome Total War kind of stuff, right? That's where you get your historical accuracy. But for us, it was more of like, Nah, let's just like you know tell a crazy story, like yeah, and get some wolfies with tutus in there. Exactly, because this games, <laughs> it's, you know, escapists. We need some, uh, you know, barbarians and like yeah. scantily clad uh, things. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good so, stuff. Though. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for this. Um, um, and how how did it go after that? And what what uh, brought you to Berlin in the end? Well, I mean, the, the VR thing was, um, you know, after doing like the climb and, and Robinson, the journey, I was just still kind of like, man, like I, I want to keep doing this VR stuff. But, you know, the trouble was that, you know, to be perfectly honest, like, you know, even though the, the VR things we did at Crytek were some of the best, you know, kind of, you know, performing VR titles, um, there just wasn't a huge market. Right. So yeah. you know, for a studio of Crytek size, you just have to be smart and go, okay, well, we kind of got to go where it's at and um which you know it's great because like you know stuff like hunt was made and they those guys did an amazing job so you know i do think like okay you know i want to keep doing this vr stuff because um i think being a, a creator and someone who is just kind of like you know looking for quote unquote the next kind of like like what's like my next thing that i want to do how can I, we be challenged and stuff and vr it's you know at especially those early days it was kind of like walking isn't even like the same right it's like yeah it's like all right if i'm making a third person game this is usually how you walk but completely new rules completely new like rule book on design and yeah we we uh you know kicked off uh you know play snack and then um in in berlin and uh that was kind of like how that whole like art kind of ended. Um, but between that, I, we definitely wanted a change as well. So I'd been at Crytek for like seven years already, eight years, something like that. And so um, short stint, like, you know, at big point, because um, I was really like interested in the game, like uh, they're, they're working on Game of Thrones. And I was like, I love Game of Thrones. I want to get into that universe. Um, but then there was just kind of like, it, it didn't really work out because I think, you know, the studio was acquired by another. Um, yeah. Chinese company and it was just kind of went a little bit weird, but it, it just so happened that around that time from the past people, like guys I'd worked with at, at Crytek mm -hmm. were like, Hey, let's start something, you know? So that led to that, that studio and, and coming to Berlin because, you know, uh, I think Berlin more than any other place has like really 
the most potential for like, you know, a big homegrown studio doing really cool stuff. And I don't know how, like seven years later, there's a lot of great studios here now. So I think our idea of coming to Berlin was the right one. Definitely. Mm -hmm. What What are your specific thoughts on that? Why do you think Berlin is, is such a fertile soil? Well, I think kind of like, you know, um, it has this perfect balance of like creativity and technology. So you have people that this, you know, there's constantly a conversation about tech, no matter what kind of tech it is, fintech or, you know, something. And it's kind of like seeding ideas. And there's a sort of like, you know, level of technical understanding in the city that tends to be a little bit higher. Also, creativity wise, I don't, you know, personally, I think that in Europe right now, this is the kind of city where it's all coming together, right? Art, fashion, like music, um, obviously the stuff that the guys do at Babelsberg, you know, Studio Babelsberg and mm -hmm. like Berlin's been in a lot of things lately because of a lot of, you know, these decisions. Like, so there's, cer there's certainly this, this hub feel to it. Um, and also kind of like, you know, as, as a, as an artist, you need inspiration, you yeah. know, and you're not going to get that, like, you know, being out, out in the middle of nowhere or something like that. It's, it's hard to come by. Yeah. No, no shade on Willigen Schwenningen though. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Sorry. Sorry. I actually, I did. No. <laughs> VS. I know this, this has gone completely off the rails because we are like we did the whole whole experience i i wasn't aware to be really really honest about everything that came before your time in germany so i didn't know that we would go like so deep yeah uh but that made it even better i guess um i think this was a record question i i think like i've never we've never done like an episode where where what answering one question yeah took an hour and 20 how did you get to berlin yeah you know <laughs> two hours later and here we are <laughs> but it's very great it's one of my favorite uh, w uh, ways of doing it also i uh, this is a bit out of game but um i could do a bit longer if we want to um yeah, yeah I dive deeper on some some other topics so we, sure, we yeah. can keep chatting um yeah Yeah, we can. Uh, I just wanted to to say, like, so now now we are basically in in current times. We have caught up and uh, are in uh, basically 2023. So we've learned that you are like on the creative side and on the technical side. So we are, although you didn't like believe it in in the beginning was like something that really um caught you and you wanted to stay in it and do more with it and so now uh you also um are in automotive oh yeah and uh, yeah. i think this connects perfectly well we also had another guest who has a games background and is in automotive before but like Why do you think I'm I'm right about this uh, conclusion that this connects very well? Well, I mean the 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 logical one right now is um, a lot of you know automakers are using game engines in their vehicles, right? Yeah. So Unreal and Unity, you know, they have whole kind of like teams like helping OEMs, and you know, one of the 
the things that, you know, Icon Incard does is, you know, they're just like one of the most awesome automotive kind of like interior design experience kind of people. And, and I was really intrigued with, okay, like, you know, when, when two universes clash, usually there's just really interesting stuff happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, what I could say is that like, you know, when, when you get into to automotive and especially working with a lot of designers, like it's really cool to see the approach to problems that from your game developer mindset, you have like a different kind of way of looking at a problem. Um, so just on a day to day, it's super kind of interesting how like you could bring a game engine into a vehicle and, you know, with, with the way automotive is going with electric and autonomous driving, there's so much interesting, you know, kind of like fertile ground to play in. Right. It's like now if the car is driving itself, you know, the, the thing that's, that's been repeated a lot is like, then the car becomes the next living room. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you think of like a car conceptually, it's probably the most like it has the most sensors like of anything produced maybe like besides planes or whatever right but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know there's a sensor for everything and like you know as a developer you kind of look at it, it's like wow those are new maybe data points right is there new you know the guys at hollow ride are doing really cool stuff you know this this um company that does like the vr headsets and in vehicles and stuff like that mm -hmm. and i just felt like okay you know um as as someone who is like you know a lover of cars and that kind of stuff it's like how how does my skill set apply to this sort of industry and what i can say is that you know the lines are starting to blur right it doesn't really matter if it's automotive or industrial design or whatever like you know people use unreal engine because they want to try to get you know render quality graphics but with more interactivity and once the kind of let's say interactivity like that door is opened it's hard to close right because yeah now you're thinking like wow like what if a like a steering wheel could be more haptic right you know um and there's there's a bunch of super cool things that that you know i've seen since i've been doing automotive stuff that are bridging these two worlds together and and also you know in a, in a very real way like um you know, the gaming generation are, are owning cars now, right? Like, yeah, you know, that's it's, real. It's a, it's a real, you know, and even if they maybe not own a car, they might have, you know, uh, like, uh, miles or not miles anymore, maybe, but you know, uh, some kind of like, you know, ride car sharing, car yeah. sharing thing. And if, if you're like, you know, on a long kind of ride, why couldn't you play a multiplayer game with people? You know, what, can the car help that? Can it create like a like super fast mesh network that allows, you know, cars in your vicinity to play games against each other? There's all these really interesting dynamics that are that are happening. And like what I could say is that, you know, um, really also there's just a practical aspect, too. So one of the things that's been cool at Icon is, you know, like helping build the real time team there and also kind of figuring out like, OK, how does this apply to the automotive industry? So as an example, um, like if you're, you know, an animator, we don't force you to animate in the Unreal Engine because that's just wacky, right? You, you yeah. animate in, uh, you know, Maya or, you know, Motion Builder, whatever, right? Um, and 
in automotive, they're kind of trying to figure out like, okay, well, what are the parts that we use game engines for versus what do we keep from our old kind of like, you know, more like 2D approach. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's creating a lot of just really interesting things. Like, you know, um, look at the new Volvo, what they're doing, some of the new Chinese electric cars. They're just like full on unity. It's like, wait, (laughs) like, so like, you literally could have a native app running where you could have a third person action game running in the car and all, you know, it's like, it's kind of a crazy, a crazy time to, you know, um, be, be doing this stuff. I mean, also I kind of helped on like, you know, project D and a few of these other kind of things, you know, so like this augmented reality BMW car at CES, you know, it's kind of like, you know, um, and there's other people also. So I'm, you know, I'm seeing more and more people from the games industry on the other side of like, zoom calls when we're interfacing with you know different oems and you can kind of be like okay how are you using the unreal engine oh we're using it this way cool now we know how to integrate our work into yours yeah so it's 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 really you know nice seeing it come together and also i mean dude look at the the cool collab that happened between the you know pokemon and mini yeah i think it was like who who would not want pokemon skin in their mini you yeah, know, it was this like, year at Gamescom as yeah. well. Very big. So cool, you know, like so that I th- I think also, you know, autom like, you know, the big automotive companies, especially in Germany as well, they realize like, okay, we you know, we need to be more inclusive to this kind of, you know, gaming culture because it it's it's sort of the dominant culture right now, mm. to be honest, you know. I wonder so. if if you have to if you have to like pay Unity a fee whenever you turn the key on the ignition. Dude. <laughs> you joke, <laughs> man! But that is a question we asked ourselves this last month. It's like, how exactly I'm, I'm does sorry, that so, work? So people now know when this was recorded. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I, I I'm not sure if I if we had a Unity joke in the. In the last episodes, so I needed to get one in at some point. But talk talk about like creating like a a backlash and like you know yeah. And I I remember thinking on top of like thinking to myself, I was like, that can't be legal, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like how how do you all of a sudden just be like, oh hey, by the way, for all of your you know like old stuff you develop too, you're gonna have to give yeah. us ins. It's like, dude, not even a you know. Yeah, that it it was a brazen move. Like you, you know, they they tried, and I think they kind of figured out like it was a yeah. bad idea. And now you're seeing the the fallout. Yeah, but you know, to me also, that's just just you know, there's certain. It's just like they're not really connected to like developers, right? And it seems to have been this for why way for a few years now. It's very true. Yeah. When I ever, I mean, I'm not that close to like the development side of things but whenever i see some of the decisions or whenever i I hear people talk about it it seems that this has been going on for a while also i know a few of the very early unity people uh, who chose to leave over the last very short years like last two three years so i think that says a lot yeah, the the, a lot of the people, you know, and, and of course, this is just, you know, from my group of people that I've talked to is it's, they feel like there's a lot of promised features that aren't followed through on, you know, yeah. or kind of half done and support for the things that really matter to them 
just like hasn't been coming through, right? So, you know, as as somebody who started their career before, there was like, you know, when every studio had its own game engine. Yep. Right. Um, you kind of see, you know, what's happening and it, it's kind of like it it reminds me of like, you know, when you're working at a studio and uh one of the core engine engineers leave. Yeah. And then like nobody wants to touch the feature because you know it's archaic or like whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you as the developer that's like, hey, I really need this, you know, system to spawn ten thousand AI at one time or whatever, right? Like what's going on there? And then like it just it just puts a bad taste in your mouth, like, oh, you know, obviously uh the team behind it doesn't care. And I'm not saying, you know, Unity doesn't care, mm. but you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? Like, you know, people wouldn't grumble if if there wasn't some truth to this stuff. And and then on top of that, they pulled the, that shenanigans and like just I just remember my circle of people just going like like, well, what are we gonna use now? You know, because we're not gonna pay <laughs> yeah. that. Like yeah. and the math didn't add up. That was the dumbest part, right? Like I saw like a bunch of devs like going like, okay, based on like us who use Unity right now, like we're gonna owe more money than Unity to than the yeah. the actual money we're making. So how does that work? You know? Yeah, so much for current events. We usually don't comment too much on those, but yeah. this was a little excursion. Yeah, definitely. To get this in still, I know that you're, last time we spoke about this, you said you're a little bit under the radar still yet with it, but you showed some stuff at Gamescom of your game that you're developing with a studio at the moment. So is there anything you can like spoil to our audience? I mean, it's still it's still very early days, but like right now, I think the biggest thing is... Uh, just more of like, okay, what is the the kind of like, let's say, soul of this thing that we're ma- that you know we're we're working on, mm-hmm. and uh, like right now we're not there, um, yeah. and and I think it's it's a little bit to do with the fact that like you know, um, I, it's it's more of like you know the team spread across multiple areas, right? Mm-hmm. And I like what like I'm trying to get my head around now is like the game has legs, right? So the kind of this project and it's, it's a, you know, third person, you know, action adventure kind of in the vein of like a souls like, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, one of the things that, that we're like always trying to figure out is kind of like with a, not a triple a team by any means or anything like that, how, how you can make an impact on the genre. And mm-hmm. we have a few really kind of, I would say novel mechanics, but there are bigger questions that I have that I think are going to take a little bit longer to figure out, like the nature of role playing games. You know, like I think that's a, that's a big thing is is to say that, like you know, like the typical classes that existed back in the days of Ultima Online still persist now. I think <laughs> it's a pretty fair statement. <laughs> you know, like is is there is there a way to reimagine this kind of thing? You know, is there something that that you know because if you make an ARPG, you have to build those systems in there, but you know, can we, you know, is the lack of like a hundred and 200 man team, can we make, you know, decisions that kind of will stand out in the end of the game to the user and the player that have to do with like attacking the foundational, like, um, like things that we believe the genre is about. 
so like in in a very simple way right um we like one of our our main concepts we're thinking about now is like can we evolve characters right so like play any typical game after you finish it 21 hours or whatever the characters die and that's the end of the game right Mm -hmm. But is there a way that we can keep the characters persistent and the storylines persistent and then try to feed content into the game? You know, like into, into those characters and those players playing those characters. So it's kind of like it's it's a small kind of switch where we're like, okay, well, maybe our job as a developer is to feed content uh, for players to play these characters in rather than having to create brand new characters that just get thrown away again, you know? Um, yep. So think of it as like, okay, if I have a, you know, whatever, my, my, my warrior named Bartholomew, whatever, right? And Bartholomew reaches, you know, level seven, and then like I gain some points, and with those points, I can age him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and maybe those points give me the ability to age him like three, four years, and I age him three or four years, like based on how I've been playing that character, maybe some of the abilities or those, you know, those uh, things I've been investing from the character creation standpoint, you know, maybe those are different based on somebody who's playing the same character who just picked different skill trees and stuff like that. And then if we do that and we're allowed to age the character, what if you can age the character 20 years, right? Like, and he becomes a grizzled old veteran and maybe he's not as fast as he used to be. But what he's lost in speed, he's gained in like a bunch of cool abilities and maybe like he has a bit more guile or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So we're really kind of looking down to the these sort of foundational ideas of like, you know, because it it's kind of weird. I always tell the story like um if you play like a pen and paper RPG, right? Like as an example, maybe the, you know, the characters I used to play with my friends when I was in high school, right? Like if I think of that character now, he's like my age version of that character he's not like when i was 16 thinking of like you know oh this guy looks like conan right like (laughs) like now it's like oh he's like you know obviously not as muscular as before he's a little bit old he's got some gray in the beard you know but he's still tough right he's still the guy that i had before and i think that's an interesting way to look at it because then if if you know characters become the thing you invest your time in and you fall in love with and they become like you know, your window into this world, then our job as a developer is to just give you the sandbox to play in, right? It's like, okay, here's another sandbox. Here's some more adventures. And it's much more akin to kind of like uh, when you release a module for like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, like rule set, whatever, you know, it's like, oh, here's five more modules. Here's five more modules. Here's like Cave of the White Worm or whatever, right? So like, um, that's that's how we're trying to think about it. And sometimes, you know, when you have a smaller team, you have to like, you know, you're forced to be more creative to make a dent, you know, or, or something that people want to play because, you know, so obviously you're not going to make this massive, you know, triple a game. So you might have to dig deeper into what makes that genre or what can make that genre different and fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I heard this like once it's like this kind of 70, 30 thing, it's like 70% expected and 30% innovation right so like if someone picks up your game there's certain expectations of how the game should feel and play but you know the innovation part is the thing that's going to really kind of draw them in and make them care Mm -hmm. about your game so i feel like we're we've got a lot of 
great momentum towards what's going to make it innovative. But if you have, if I'm really kind of honest with myself, we need to dig deeper and that's sort of like where we're at, but the, you know, rest assured, like, I think sometime, you know, the next months we'll put up our steam page and kind of, you know, figure it out from there, but we're not quite there yet. I'm not like, Mm -hmm. I'm not, it's yeah. Also just to kind of like on a little side note, how we're approaching the problem as well is like, I've kind of started contacting some of my design friends, you know, guys that have been in this industry for a while and putting together kind of like a, I don't know, council of the wise or whatever. Yes. Very good. (laughs) And just kind of being like, Hey, let's, you know, everything that we've, you know, built up over the last 20 years, let's deconstruct it. And, you know, like, can you help us change it up? Like, why did we have tanks in the first place? You know, like, right. Yo, dude, I have a question for you on sure. that. What is your, so if I'm hearing you right, I'm hearing like a very pleasantly slow, we'll figure it out emergingly process here. Somewhere earlier in the episode, I was going to make a comment that I didn't get to about kind of, uh, it seems like you like emergence, you know, kind of the put a few boundaries together so that there is a room to play in and you know you can't play in infinite you can't like there's no play somewhere where there aren't any boundaries but they're pretty loose and then you can see what emerges by like waiting or fiddling around or whatever as long as uh, well assuming that i'm that i'm right about that assumption it's something that i like as well what's your creative process like um if you're you seem to be gunning for quite the serious innovation here and obviously, as we've heard in throughout your story, you have a great track record for innovation. See or compare from Crytek game without shooting, which is like serious innovation, um, definitely. Yeah. So, what's your creative process like here, and why do you want that? Like, seems like you're 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 aiming, you're quietly aiming for something pretty significant. Yeah, I, I think part of the motivating, you know, thing about like the creative process for me is, um, let's say, giving things time to breathe. Right. I, th- yeah. I think at the end of the day, the difference between like being shotgun through a project versus having the time to really think and innovate on things, you know, has to do with like how much time you give the team, not just you know me, obviously, because you know. In, in, in a good situation, like, you know, 90% of the innovation is coming from the people doing the stuff, right? Yeah. So it's it's kind of like you do something, you build it, you play it, you give it time to, like, sink in. And then you kind of, like, start asking, like, okay, is this, is this a, like, achieving this kind of high-level goal we set for ourselves, right? So a really good example you know, of kind of like, you know, the project, it's like, okay, in, in our game, there are no dynamic lights except this orb that follows you around. Like literally there's no lights in the whole game. We have these torches that if you run your orb by, they light up and light up the area for a short time, right? So that mechanic came out of like months of trying to figure out like, how do we make a better flashlight <laughs> that's more fun, like in more high stakes you know, so that was the initial kind of direction. It's like, 
you know, it's, it's fun to be in a dark place and have a flashlight, right. And look around mm -hmm. corners and, but like, that's, that's kind of something like we can play other games and feel that out, but you know, are there really like high stakes in it? You know, most of the time it's no, most of the time it's kind of like, there's this almost shade of purple and you, you know, something's coming, you know, but we literally kind of went out of our way to develop, you know, this kind of like, we crushed the blacks, like what, what your light doesn't shine into the world. If you turn up your gamma, it's not going to oh, really? do anything. <laughs> it's wow. just like, it's literally, that's what I mean. Like taking time to, to, to sit on that concept and go like, well, no, no, like, like, there are no dynamic lights. What if we just remove them all, right? Yeah, and then and, you try and so it. What what, yeah. what does it do in your experience when you when you really because uh, you're a designer, obviously, when you really hone into a detail, what what like that, like why you know there's a question kind of why would you even do that? I get it, but for fun, you can still answer it. What what happens when you hone in on a detail like that? Like why is it important that you got the blacks right like that? Because a lot of, you know, when you're, you're, you know, crafting a game is the sort of like the lens that you're looking through, right? So as an example, you know, um, with you could go and, and play Rise and you can see this, right? We had this idea that, you know, when you go from normal navigation to combat, the camera should never cut, right? It's like it should be this long, continuous like and and developing a system that made that like the player not notice that but made the game feel really cinematic like came out of that that like this idea that early on we're like how do we make this feel as close to a kurosawa like movie or you know something like uh this this other you know movie children of man and you know that that same motivation obviously is there in god of war too you or god of war you saw that right like how it makes a difference you know so I think when the lens is like, okay, we're why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this so that when we go from a story moment into a combat moment, the player feels like we've set the scene and that they they don't feel like there's a disconnect between what just happened and what's what's gonna happen. And you know, in Rise, we're successful, semi-successful. Sometimes we had to do hard cuts, which is impossible. But you know, it was it was still a motivation because the idea was like, okay, if we want to make a cinematic game, then we have to give ourselves some like you know we have to achieve something that makes it feel cinematic. And and with the game we're working on right now, um, the idea is like, well, like, are you really afraid of the dark in video games? You know, that was that was the. Like, are you really afraid of the dark? Because me personally, the answer is like you know. You play Dead Space once or twice, you're not, you know, you're not like Silent Hill. All right, like it's, but you know, at some if point, you, if if you haven't played Amnesia like me, then there are also reasons for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and that and that whole kind of thing also is that it's a co-op multiplayer game, so it's like, well, you know, two lights are better than one, you know. So every like that, th what I'm trying to say is that lens about the light and the way it lights the world it affects the decisions you make on how you perceive your game and you know different studios call okay these are the design pillars but i really like the terminology lenses right because like all so. right when we're looking at the game right now we said we want to make you know the character animations beautiful and feel like a ballet 
right? The lens we're looking at the game now is like, is it fluid? Is it like a ballet? If not, then what do we have to do to fix it? Right. So that's, you know, and, and really good, you know, it's, and there's not just one, there's multiple ones. Right. But like for now, for, for the game, uh, the new project, it's like, we had to figure out like, okay, like we, and we tried, we're like, okay, can we make it so that this light, like when it, it casts in this certain area, then the fall off is a lot more subtle and we can kind of light to hint to the player that, okay, this is what's coming. And the solution was actually more of like, no, no, we're going to crush it, crush the blacks. But now we allow you to send your orb out into the world like a drone so you can look around. But that's like way more cool than just having a flashlight and, you know, looking around the, the world. And there's different trade-offs, but it's it's those kind of things that, that really players really kind of, uh, they really, it really resonates with. I mean, the last... This this one game done by Sam and the guys over at you know, the guys that did uh, Max Payne mm-hmm. the the game with like the brutalist architecture right the one thing that I immediately noticed is like man when like the destruction in this thing is absolutely useful and we've seen destruction in games tons of times like it's it's not a new thing oh you mean control yeah control yeah exactly right that's yeah sorry I forgot the name but um when you play control you're like wow like yeah the story and all that kind of stuff is is super cool and the tone but like once you get the breaking things and smashing them yeah you're just like that's the thing right that's that that's their 30 percent they killed yeah yeah this is good i like this this um this kind of focus on a thing i think um as far as i understand creativity this kind of um obsessiveness about a thing that can be quite arbitrary you you just want to you know in this case get darkness right or mm, have brutalist architecture and then destroy it whatever your reason <laughs> maybe yeah but getting it really really right that lens as i think you i think design pillars is i agree with you kind of too corporate but you take a lens that's kind of an an unabstracted thing you're just making something that's very real um yeah i think that that is a very great creative tenant to to make amazing shit happen i would like to invite you pj to our essential questions we did not cover a thing that we often cover in these in this podcast which is kind of like we we were pointing at it with like your your creative process and so on but a bit of you know work life philosophy and and so on and so forth but we have essential questions which are which have a bit of a profundity to them. So um, you're invited to answer them in a quick fire mode as much as you want and you can. Yes, indeed. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. The first very simple and unassuming question as always is, what is the purpose of your being? Hmm. Yeah, so quick answer off the top of my head is, uh, right now, I think uh, my wife and I—we're you know, in this this season of changing to give back more to the world and do more humanitarian focused, you know, efforts through art, whether it's games, music, this kind of stuff. So yeah, right now, I think that's our our purpose. Yeah, amazing. What inspires you? I really love a good underdog story. 
my man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'm not gonna lie, like you know, if if so, you know, like the movie Rudy or any kind of thing, like I just watched this thing and it was on Disney Plus of the guy that created flaming hot Cheetos, you know, from a mm-hmm. poor Mexican family, you know, and he kind of loved that stuff. Maybe it's just the American in me. I love it too. Not gonna lie. Um what is a beautiful day to you? Oh man, you know, honestly, it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a very Berlin thing, you know, hanging with, uh, the family, you know, maybe grabbing some Goldie's fried chicken or going to my friend, uh, Don's, uh, like Thai noodle place, uh, Meyer up and then hitting up some duo ice cream afterwards. <laughs> it's simple, you know, like, yeah. Nice family and food. What is the change you want to see in the world? Oh, that's a big one. I mean, I think what I would like to see is, you know, a lot more just let's, let's call it human facing respect, I guess is the best way to put it. You know, it's like, I think there's a lot of these constructs that are around us and the more that we can, you know, get outside of those constructs and just see people for people, then yeah, that would be a good change. And the necessary follow-up, how do you contribute to that? Well, I, I think it goes back to what I was saying, you know, the the purpose, like, you know, definitely being a creative, there's always going to be creative things we're doing, you know, how can we, we turn those creative things into something that can, you know, lift people up from poverty or a number of things, you know, like, can a video game fund an orphanage, you know, stuff like that. So I think that's, that's our plan, you know, we're moving towards that. If you would start a new safe game in your life right now, what occupation would your new character have? Oh man, that's it's a hard one. I think I have a lot of save games, like got like ten of them right now in the bank. But uh, <laughs> I, I think you know maybe uh, giving uh, music a go again. You know, started out in music, but it's kind of like maybe resurrecting an old save game from an old you know mm-hmm. save card from PlayStation uh, One days or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice, yeah. the rock star. Rockstar class. Hey, you know, Bring it back. It's never too late. It's never too late. No. Do you have books that you often recommend or you like to give to people? Top three? Ooh, okay. So definitely A Theory of Fun. A Theory of Costa, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great book for anybody who is a game maker or just wanna, wants to understand game making. There's a book called Save the Cat. And it's actually, I think, it's, it's about screenwriting. But there's like so much more and kind of like how to how to bring people along a journey and have all these high stake moments. These are all creative stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the last one would actually be there's this uh, this book called I can never remember the name. It's actually by U.S. pastor Rick Warren, and it's called like uh, Living a Something Life, a the Purpose Driven Life. Purpose Driven Life. That's it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really good one. Yeah, that's very changes a lot of your mindset. Yeah, very funny. I I think I picked that up for like a euro at Shakespeare's and Sons uh, Sons once, and yeah. uh, I have it here somewhere. The purpose driven life, and I just liked the word purpose at the time, and it seemed like a bit of a dud. I never really looked at it, but yeah, and and so you're the first person that knows this, so that's hilarious to me. So now I yeah, will have I, to I, look at it again. I think it was a New York Times bestseller and all that. You know, it's uh, sick. Do, yeah, yeah, it's a good book. What did it change for you? Do you have a note on that? Do you remember? I mean, yeah, I think it just, you know, it it's like about your first question, you know, what's the purpose of your being, right? Mm-hmm. I think like, you know, now we're sort of at 
this age where like, you know, we're, you know, comfortable, right? But it's kind of like, do you, what do you aspire to have? Like, is, is it now I'm going from like this phase, like, do you need more houses and more cars or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like, or, you know, do you want to affect your community in a positive way and have like some real purpose? Because, you know, I think when when you're doing stuff like that, it's not just about like the, oh, look, you know, pat myself on the back. I feel good. But it's really, you know, like it's never bad lifting somebody up, you know, like no matter what comes out of it. Right. Hell yeah. Over to you, Mr. Florian. Indeed. We have another list question and it's, do you have any favorite games? Also one, two, three. Who? this is the most tough question you could ever ask a <laughs> developer. But one of them is going to probably surprise you. This was a recommendation from somebody years ago. It's actually a series of game, like 18 Wheels of Steel across America. Mm-hmm. Like, that is just, it's just such a good game. Um, <laughs> uh, and then the second one has to be XCOM. Mm-hmm. As far as just like, you know, the sheer amount of like, let's say, like focus and then like thinking you have to put behind every single thing that you do. Like it's really, really intense. And then the last one I think has to be funny enough, like Minecraft. Nice. Like it just absolutely, you know, when that game came out and still now, like if I pop back into it, I can just get lost. It's just, yeah. It's insane. Yeah. Whenever I get a, like a, I don't know, whenever I get a friend that says, Hey, We haven't played Minecraft in a while. It's like <laughs> two weeks are gone. Yeah, exactly. And you always <laughs> end up starting in the same place, but before you know it, you're like like yeah. 30 minutes away. Right? Like, <laughs> where are you? I'm really deep. Okay. Who is somebody from the games industry that you would like to get to know? Ooh, that's a good one. I've always, I've always really wanted to hang out with Will Wright like the the sim the creator of the sims and he's the guy i mean he like does robotics and kind of crazy cool stuff but um you know who made the sims right yeah <laughs> like <laughs> the, indeed that's a good choice we never had this before and uh there is a little trapdoor in this question but it's not a trapdoor for you it's one for us and uh <laughs> we will try to figure out a way to connect you oh that would be amazing <laughs> we 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 never promise, but we, we set ourselves a task to, at some day, grant a wish. <laughs> nice. Who is someone you know you think we should have on this podcast? Hmm. That's another good one. So I'll connect you with my buddy Silver, nice. Who, who is a one of the most amazing concept artists, and and actually him and. His uh, partner, I think Kaya, Silver and Kaya would be good. They're like this, you know, a lot of the the projects where had the most creative success they've been on. They're just like amazing. And they had this uh, really cool design called um, Run Freak Run. Uh-huh. You can find it on the internet, but they're like, yeah, amazing concept artists. But more than that, just really cool people and like great creatives uh, to talk to, you know. Nice. And they we, both dress we- like Sith Lords, which is kind of cool. <laughs> All right, we 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 
it's been a while since we had a like a two guest episode. Yeah. So and also we never had a Sith Lord, so that's nice. Well, Shouldn't you know, be careful what you do. I'm just saying, yeah, like, yeah. you know, they might reach across the microphone and yeah, strangle you. <laughs> yeah, and they, there's always two, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> always a master. And <laughs> well done. Well, well done. done, indeed. I was like so sweating. Oh my! God. Am I getting this right yeah. now? Am I getting... <laughs> Star Wars lore <laughs> callback? So much, so much Star Wars lore in the beginning, and well I played. was like listening. I was like. Hope we don't get to ask me any Star Wars lore. <laughs> cool. Final question. Where can people find you? Yeah, probably LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Yeah. If not there, then uh, yeah, definitely on Sundays hanging around Goldie's and uh, Duo in that neck of Berlin. Like, you know. Nice. Sweet. You you gave a you gave a real life place, uh, but it wasn't your home. We also had that uh, at some <laughs> point from from another guest. So I'm happy that nobody else came to the idea of like doxing themselves. Oh man, I should have I should have given a much cooler answer to that. Where can people find me? <laughs> no, I think it's perfect. In the Matrix. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> find me in the Matrix, <laughs> bro. You are trapped in the Matrix. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I would this podcast like to, is not real. Yeah, no. exactly. I would also like to contribute a quote here from Will Wright because I, I found his Twitter account. And on his Twitter account, wait, wh where the hell is it now? It says in his bio, I enjoy a variety of fun things from golf to mini golf. So <laughs> I like Will Wright. I also really like Spore. I never played Sims, but I like Spore. I think Spore is one of the best games ever made. Spore was so great. It was yeah, so yeah. Good. It was kind. Of, it, what, I remember when I played that. I was just like, "Who else but Will Wright can make a game like this?" Right, right. right. Like, yeah, it's great. Will yeah. Will Wright Will Will write <laughs> a game? Anyway, sorry. All right. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. That's <sighs> it That's for cool. this episode. Thank you so much, PJ, for coming on. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. And thank you to the audience for listening. Hear you soon. It was a blast. Au revoir. All right. And goodbye. Take care. Bye. <laughs>